Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Welcome, and let's pray. Father, we do thank you for bringing us together, and we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that as we open your word, that you would be speaking to us through your Holy Spirit. And we would ask that not only would um, we increase in all spiritual knowledge, as you have promised, but that we would um, work that out in our lives, that our feet would be swift to do your will, that our hearts would be ready that our mind would be occupied with your thoughts, and we pray that our speech would bring glory and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at um, covenant, and uh, some of you may say, well, I don't see covenant in creation. Uh, We're going to be looking at that. We did um, the creation covenant two Sundays ago, and uh, now we're going to be moving on. So we looked at the covenant of creation with um, the created order and also with Adam and Eve, and uh, today we have a more somber um, look at what happened to that uh, covenant, to the the brokenness that came into our world. And... um, what that is all about. So as I, one of the things I notice is that as I talk with various people, they have um, uh, different ideas and different problems of why they come or you know don't come to faith in Christ. But one of the ones that seems to be a recurrent one, not just for people that you know they they can't seem to overcome this, but also even for Christians, is the question of evil, and. Um, it really comes to uh, doubt about God's goodness. That, that's predominantly what that problem is. Why is there evil in the world, and why doesn't God, if he's a good God, do something about it? And I don't think there's any of us that haven't grappled with that, and even if you have come to terms with it and kind of um, feel like you've had that answered for yourself, when somebody else questions us on it, We kind of stumble over our words, and we don't seem to be able to articulate it very well. And so um, I'm attempting to look at that this morning by looking at the bigger picture, um, the big picture of what God's purposes are that explains why he doesn't just sort of eradicate evil right now and let us move on. But he has um, his purposes, he has a plan for the outworking of his creation, even though it's a a fallen and broken world now. So the goal always is that we see Christ in all. And specifically right now, we're looking at the covenants and to see Christ in all the covenants, not just when we get to the New Testament, but Christ is our theme throughout the scripture and the focal point of all the covenants that God brings to man. And so um, we want to look at how Christ is in covenant and how he brings meaning 
to the problem of evil in the world. So the last time we looked at the covenant and creation, and I want to look at two other scriptures that we didn't look at two weeks ago that I think are really helpful for understanding how God commits himself in um, a covenantal relationship with creation. So if you'll turn with me to Jeremiah 31, and I'm going to look at verses 35 to 36. But really, Jeremiah 31 has a lot about covenant in it, and we'll come back to it at a future date. But I just want to look at these two verses for today. In verse 35, it says there, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So in other words, what he's doing is um, the Lord is, is showing how his covenant with Israel is unchanging, just like the order of the day and the night. We still have day and night this many thousands of years later. It's never changed. We have day and we have night. And that's not because it's just like that's how things are. It's actually because of God's covenant to keep it that way. And he is the one who maintains the order of the day and the night. It's not just by coincidence. It's not happenstance. The Lord maintains the order of day and night because he said he would when he created. And turn to uh, chapter 33 of Jeremiah, verses 20 to 21. And there it's even clearer. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, there you have it, my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. So in other words, God again is connecting his, um, the, the covenant of creation, the covenant of the day and the night, which is a reference to all of creation. He's saying that that's such a sure thing, and so is my covenant with David. That's how sure my covenant with David is. And when we get to David, we'll look at that scripture again, I'm sure. So we learn from um, the creation account that God made man in his image, and he made him perfect in creation. But God also gave man choice to believe him. So in creating man, he's created him perfect, he's created him without sin, and then he gives choice to Adam and to all of us, to all mankind, whether to believe him or not. Like today, we have that same choice that Adam had way back when. We can choose to believe him or to not believe him. It's your choice. He gives us that choice. There's consequences to our choice, but the choice is ours. So let's just turn back to the uh, Genesis account. And um, we're going to look at the creation, Genesis 2.15. And my, my Bible's all, all wrinkled here, but I still, that's the Bible I want to read out of. Okay. So Genesis 2.15, we read, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. 
And so in that garden, if we were to read on, we would see that there's um, the two trees, the tree of life, which they were allowed to eat from, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which that's where the choice was. They were not to eat it. And so they had the choice to believe God because he said, if you do eat from it in that day, you shall surely die. Um, so if they do, in verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here's the command, you shall not eat. Like they have the choice, but God is telling them, don't eat because in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so our question is, well, why put the tree there in the first place? Like, wouldn't it have been better if the tree of knowledge of good and evil wasn't even in the garden so that they didn't even have the opportunity to sin? Well, then I would suggest, what kind of a choice is that? There would be no choice. How would you like it if all choice is taken away from you? You don't have a choice for anything. You're now an automaton. This is how it is. This is what you will do. Like, what kind of a life is that? It's not the kind of life that he gives to one who's made in his own image. So God has choice, and he gives to us choice. God has choice to love us, and he does. We have choice to love God and believe him, which quite often we fail at. And certainly we know the story of, of Adam and Eve and what happened. So, um, But what God is saying is, the same thing, um, he gives this covenantal relationship to man. So he says to mankind, to Adam, and then it would have been for all of us if we'd stayed in Eden, um, you can live here, you can eat from anything, the tree of life, but not from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, then in that day you shall surely die. So God gives that choice to mankind and that um, covenantal relationship. You are going to um, now be fruitful and multiply. And I, God, in, on, on my part, is going to make you to be fruitful and to multiply. And so the, the labor that you do will be fruitful. And you will have um, children, and you will multiply in so many other ways as well. And so he says, that's what I will do for you, but on your part, you're not going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're going to be doing um, labor, but your labor will be productive. Imagine this. Every seed that you put into the garden is going to sprout and be really healthy, and you're not going to have much work to do because there's not going to be any weeds. And so, and the rain is going to come up all the time. It's going to be misted all the time, just the right amount. And uh, when you go to harvest, there's going to be so much that you can share it with all of your neighbors because there's way more than what you can manage. But they're going to have so much too. Like that's, that's how it was supposed to be. It's not that we don't do anything, but our labor is always fruitful. It's always beneficial. When you call the cattle... They come, and they just line up, and they go exactly where you want them to go. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, of course, it's like that today. <laughs> so that's what the relationship was between man and creation. But, of course, we know it didn't stay like that. So I'm going to read from Chapter 3, The Fall of Man. To me, this bar none is the saddest chapter of all scripture, but in our sorrow, 
we're not only going to see um, the most sorrowful thing that ever happened on earth, we're going to also see the wonderful, beautiful, redemptive promises of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, meaning God, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Well, there it is. And it's not very hard to figure out who the serpent is. It tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, it says, the serpent of old, who is the devil, who is Satan. And so um, let's go back to what the devil, in the form of this serpent, says to Eve and how this happened in the first place. And I just want us to see that, you know, the devil is crafty, but he's not very original. And so he keeps using the same form of deception because we're not very crafty, but, and we're not very original either. 
and we keep falling into these same sins. And so we want to look at how it was that the devil was able to deceive Eve, Eve who had it perfect, whose life was perfect. There wasn't anything that she needed or wanted. Everything was good. She had one choice, and yet she was deceived by this crafty serpent to eat from that tree, that one thing that she was told not to do. And so we look at what Satan says to her. And he says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And so in that one, th one statement, what he's doing, he's saying, Indeed, has God said? So he's casting doubt on the word of God. It was the word of God to eat. This is our word of God. Do you doubt it? If you do, you're in the same predicament as Eve. And we know where that ended up. And so he's calling us not to doubt his word, not to believe Satan. Satan uses that same ploy over and over and over to make us doubt God's word. And so the next thing that happens, um, verse 4, and the serpent said to, like the woman says, you know, God told us not to touch it. Well, that's actually not what God said. He said not to eat it from it, or you shall surely die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. Like direct contradiction to God's word. And so he denies God's word, and he tempts Eve to do likewise. And then in verse 5, he goes on to, d to really put doubt on God's good character. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is holding out on you, Eve. If you would do this, you would be like him. But he doesn't want you like him, so that's why he's telling you not to eat from that tree. Like you would think, after spending time with God, she would know his character, and yet she herself doubts God's goodness. And her doubt leads her into sin. And think about this. Think about, you know, what do I think of God? Do I doubt his character? When I'm dealing with this whole problem of pain, am I casting aspersions on God's character? Well, maybe he's not so good, or maybe he's not so powerful. He is a good God, and he is all-powerful. That isn't our starting point for dealing with the problem. And so we look at Eve, we look at what she did, and we look at how Satan tempted her. And he exchanged God's truth, which is his goodness, and his command saying, this is what is going to happen. He exchanges God's truth for a lie. He says, God's not good, and that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die, in other words. You're going to be like God. You're not going to be dead. You're going to be like God. And so he exchanged God's truth for a lie. Every deception of man, in fact, all evil, stems from doubting and not believing the word of God. It always does. And so it's so critical for us to know his word. This isn't sort of like a book that you read that's just an interesting book. It's actually inspired word of God. These are his very words. And the things that he says, this is going to be foundational for you building a good life. 
good character and for having a life that is built on his righteous ways. So, um, you know, when we have those doubts about God's word, that isn't our starting point. When we have doubts about his character, that's not our starting point for dealing with a problem. Turn with me to Hosea 6, 6 to 7. And Hosea is the, the first one of the minor prophets that comes after all the big long prophets. I like this one. Let's look at what Adam's sin really was, because it tells us in Hosea. Hosea 6, 6 and 7. For I delight in loyalty rather than service, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. So Adam transgressed the covenant, the covenantal relationship in creation. There they have dealt treacherously against me. And that's the Lord talking. So he says what he makes the connection between being loyal to him, to God, and Adam was not loyal to him. He wasn't loyal to the creational covenant. And so um, God says that that treachery toward God breaks the covenantal relationship with him. And so the question for us is, are we loyal to God? Do you ever pray, Lord, make me loyal like we, we use the word faithful, but sometimes I think we should switch it up and say, Lord, help me to be loyal to you. Help me not to deny you. When people say things that, you know, cast dispersion on your word, when they don't believe your word, help me not to sort of join them by my silence, but to be loyal to you and to stick with the things that you have said. So um, turn back then to Genesis 3, verse 6. And let's look at Eve again. And this is the progression of sin. This is, this is how we get trapped. So you don't just, you know, one day you're walking along and everything's good and you're praising the Lord and then all of a sudden you're in sin. It doesn't work that way. There's a progression to it. And when we are wise to it, it says in Scripture to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves. So when we're wise to Satan's ways, of how he tempts us, then we can be ready. We're not so easily deceived. And so um, when the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was, first of all, good for food. In other words, she believed the lie of Satan. Because before that, she wouldn't even touch the tree. It was so, like, in her mind, so awful that she wouldn't even go near it. And now she's believed the lie and she sees, oh, it's good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. So she saw it through new eyes. Before, she didn't want to go anywhere near it. She didn't see it as a good thing at all. And now she's delighting in looking at it and saying, oh, it's beautiful. I want, I want. And so, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And that word is sakal in the Hebrew. So that word um, wise is to um, be able to know everything in order to lead a life of prosperity and success. It's used in the book of Joshua when it talks about then you'll be prosperous and successful. Not prosperous necessarily in financial ways, but maybe. But the point is that life will be perfect. And her life is already perfect. 
What more could she want? And yet she saw and desired that lie. She desired to be wise like God. Then the next one, she moved toward the lie. She took from its fruit. Now she's well on her way to sinning, but she even now could stop because God never said anything about touching. He said eating. So even now, this far in, have you ever been so far in the temptation that you say, well, I may as well give in now? You don't have to. Pray. Ask for the power of God to resist sin, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Even now, she could have turned away, but she took, she moved toward the lie, and then she possessed the lie. She ate it. So she possessed the lie of Satan. And not only did she do that, she turned and she influenced another one with her. When we go down in sin, we influence others to do likewise. And that's why when others sin around us, it influences us. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into those same sins. And so she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So you think, we're watching Eve all this time. Adam was there. He's paying attention to what's happening to her. She ate, and nothing bad happened to her from what he could visually see. And so he's thinking, I guess Satan's right. She's going to have all this wisdom now, and I can't let her be like that. I got to be there too. She's not going to have one up on me. And so he eats. And then it says, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They didn't feel wise. They felt shame. Now they know that they are naked. Where they had no shame before, now shame enters in. And they knew that they were naked. So the trust that they had between the two of them, the love that they had between the two of them, the innocence between the two of them is now shattered. It's gone. And it's now replaced by shame, by hurt, by distrust of one another. And the covenantal relationship with creation and one another is broken. Because now, verse 10, we're going to have the Lord enters in. And, um, well, verse 9, he says, where are you? Now, God never asks questions to gain knowledge, okay? Like when God asks us questions, it's not for his sake. He knows everything. He asks questions to make us think and to bring us to a point of confession. So that's what he's doing here. And they could confess, but listen to how they deal with it. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, this is Adam answering, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam's never known fear before. Now fear is part of who he is and fear never leaves him. Fear never leaves mankind from this point forward. Fear becomes one of the things that we are always having to deal with, all kinds of fears. 
And if we don't have a fear, we'll invent a fear in order to have a fear because that's our comfort zone, to have fear. And so now this fear, this fear not only um, in his nature now, but his fear of God. And so he hides himself. I hid myself. And um, God said, who told you that you were naked? Like, How would you figure that one out, Adam? In other words, come on, tell me what's happening here. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The Lord fully knows this, but he wants Adam to say, yes, yes, I, I did this. I, I didn't listen, and I just, I'm so ashamed and sorry, and I repent. But does Adam do that? No, not at all. She did it. Her fault. And you can just see the eyebrow of the Lord going up. And then he does something even worse. He says, well, you gave her to me. It's your fault. You're the one who made this all happen. And he puts on God the reason for his own sin. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, the Lord's rules are too hard to keep. It's his fault for making the rules so difficult. What is that but blaming God? That's just the same thing as what Adam did. And when Adam looked at Eve, or sorry, when the Lord looked at Eve, what did Eve say? was a serpent he's so wicked wasn't me I ate because the serpent told me to so who did Eve believe God or the serpent she believed the serpent she believed the lie she believed Satan and so um there they are in their shame. Their shame, um, they tried to cover over what they do when they saw we're naked. Better do something about this one. So they went and got the biggest leaves they could find. It's not like our little fiscus that are those tiny little fig leaves. These would be great big beautiful ones. And they took them and um, Eve sewed them together. It's the first quilt in, in history. <laughs> and Eve sewed them together for them, and they covered themselves with it, and like, this is going to get us through the rainstorms that are going to come. So they tried to fix it themselves. And don't we try to do that? We try and fix our own problems. We do something that's shameful, and we try and fix it. I didn't do that. It wasn't my fault. Well, here, I can, I can fix it up. I can make it better, and it will be okay. And so Eve tries to fix it, and Adam tries to fix it by covering themselves. Of course, that doesn't work. And um, it doesn't, they can't cover their sin. It's to no avail. So um, we see instead of confession, they blame, and we see the consequences now in the order of, really, the defection. So, you know, the defection is Satan, Eve, Adam, and we're going to see um, God talking to them in that order. So the first one he addresses is actually to the serpent, because you have done this. Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So it actually is a curse to the serpent itself for being... Um, 
the one that was um, the instrument or the tool of Satan. But as we read in Revelation, Satan has occupied the serpent, and so the next part is directly to Satan. And I, meaning God, will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall bruise you on the head is our promise. And that promise is going to be more and more revealed as we go through the scriptures, um, all the way through um, the history of mankind. So the, the serpent is going to crawl on his belly to Satan. He's going to be dealt a fatal wound. The blow to the head is a fatal wound um, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So for Eve, it's going to be pain, and discontentment is going to be her, her mark. And for Adam, um, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, because he could have stopped it, and he didn't. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. Labor's good. Toil, not so good. It's great to create something and to do something with our hands or to you know, feel physically fit and accomplish something or to use our minds and solve a problem. This feels good. But when it becomes toilsome, like now we're at an exam, that's toilsome. Or, you know, we're trying to move things and they don't budge and we pull our muscles trying to do it. That's toil. When we work all day only to have the labor come to naught because something's gone wrong, that's toil. Now, toil is going to be how it works. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He's going to have thorns and thistles and um, really... He's going to have that band playing all the time, blood, sweat, and tears. In the midst of these dreadful consequences of unbelief, God, in his mercy and in his grace, gives the promise of redemption. He says that he shall bruise, Jesus Christ shall bruise Satan on the head. It'll be, um, that word bruise, I prefer um, the better translation of it, crush. He shall crush you on the head. And so um, in the middle of these dreadful consequences, our covenant-keeping God is great in his mercy, in his forgiveness. He will forgive, he does forgive, and he will redeem. He does redeem. So there's hope given in the midst, right in the middle of this judgment, in the center feature of it, of the judgment, God gives hope of, re of redemption, hope of restoration. So there's two ways of looking at this whole thing with Adam and Eve. There's the man-centered way. I think most of us have been here. I know for sure I've said this on more than one occasion. Oh, great. It could have been so great, but no. Adam and Eve had to go and muck it up for the rest of us. And now we're stuck with how the world is. I didn't do this. It's their fault. Blame. 
I think we've all been there. That's sort of the man-centered um, way, or even you know the humanist um, way of seeing it, where you know they don't even acknowledge the Adam and Eve um, account, but they say you know the world's a mess. Like we just had that big um, strike, you know, a couple of days ago or yesterday or whatever it was, where they um, the world was supposed to go on strike. I, I'm not sure how we do this, but whatever. We were supposed to go on strike about um, uh, the environment. And uh, so what we do now is we say man is the problem. And so if we would contain man, you know, keep man out of the parks so that the animals can live, keep man away from this, don't let man do that, Man's the problem, and if we control and contain man, nature will get back on its course. That's the man-centered approach to this whole problem. So, you know, it can be either way, you know, sort of the Christian man who says these things about Adam and Eve, or the humanist man who uh, says, well, you know, we can do it, we'll get nature back on, we just have to get ourselves out of the picture. That's one way. The other way is the God-centered way. And this is the perspective that we should have, the point of view where all the glory goes to Jesus. So God's glory as the great creator has been assaulted in this account with Adam and Eve. His glory has been assaulted. His handiwork has been disharmonized. It was all in beautiful harmony. And with the entrance of this sin, of this doubt, of this belief of Satan, over the great and glorious God, now all of creation, his handiwork has been disharmonized. So it's an assault against God. Redemption is undertaken not just for the sake of man, but for the glory of God. Because God is going to restore it. And God is going to set all of creation back in his time. And so um, the ultimate purpose of the covenant of creation can only be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Even that original covenant, when things were so perfect, but then broken, can only be restored through the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive covenant. Let's turn to Romans 8, verse 18 to 23. And it says there, um, this is Paul writing in Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And then in uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time came, like in God's timing, God sent forth his son. So the intended um, goals of the two covenants, creation and redemption, 
correspond. The goal of creation, the goal of redemption, they go together. By redemption, by the redeeming work of Christ on the cross, the original purposes of creation are not only achieved, but excelled. Like heaven is going to be way, way better than even Eden. And that's hard for us to imagine. In fact, so hard that we're told you can't, you can't imagine. You can't imagine what it's going to be like. Like we can kind of imagine Eden because we do have nice days like today. So we can kind of imagine Eden if it's so beautiful. But we're told we can't even imagine how amazing heaven is going to be for us. And we're going to have physical bodies, so it's going to be a physical place. So our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's actually, it's not just that creation is going to be so much better, but also our relationship with God is going to be even better than Adam and Eve's was before the fall. It's going to excel that because we have been redeemed. That choice has been made. And we belong to him if you have made that choice. If you have made that choice to believe him over Satan, if you have taken Jesus Christ as your savior, then the choice is made and the relationship that we are promised, even though we don't quite see it yet, we have got already the joy of our salvation, the joy of God's salvation, but it's going to be way bigger, way fuller, way more fulfilling when we see him face to face. And so we see that we have both of these covenants, creation and redemption, woven together and fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. So God still, like the creation covenant is not like gone. God still committed himself to give us day and night. He's still doing it. He's committed to, you know, the ground still producing the problem is it's going to be harder for us to do it now. But God is still doing his part and producing for us. He still is committed to his creation covenant in the same way that he is committed to his redemptive co covenant. So, you know, he doesn't, with the fall of man, the covenant's not obliterated. It's not abolished. We still have co covenantal responsibilities. We are still called, like in Noah's day, and we're going to look at this the next time, um, we're still called to be fruitful and to multiply. It's just going to be a lot more difficult. It's just going to be a lot harder. But we're still called to do it. So is there toil in your labors? Is there unfruitfulness? Striving with one another, with God? Constant battles in our world? We see it all the time. Divisions, jealousy, enviousness. We experience battle lines in our world so that we can get more selfishness. We see it all the time. But in the midst of the pain and suffering, God gives the promise of redemption. He is full of mercy and grace. Not one second does God want us to live without hope. So even in the midst of the judgment passage in Genesis 3, he gives us hope. Not for one second does he want us to be without hope. And so he gives the promise of the one, Jesus Christ, who will come and crush Satan underfoot and bring redemption to mankind. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So Jesus is our hope, our only hope. Man would tell us these things. These are kind of the four main things. There's probably other ones you can add to the list that man tells us. Think positively. You know, just think positively, it'll all be fine. It's not very fine, it's because you're not thinking positively. Think positively, it'll be fine. Or we're told um, in some circles of the Christian world, just claim it. Say it and it's true. Say the words and the words, they become a reality. That's what man says. This isn't what God says. This is what man says. Something else man says, live it up, tomorrow we die. So, you know, just have fun now because you're going to die anyway. Or the more, you know, sorrowful one says, this was the existentialist that came out from France and we all studied it in high school. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. So what does it matter? It doesn't have any meaning anyway. But God doesn't tell us those things. God um, is, is not telling us, you go solve the problem. God says, I have. He enters in and he gives us the promise that Satan will be utterly defeated. He'll be destroyed by Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. And so as history unfolds for us, more and more of God's plan of salvation is revealed. And he reveals more and more of how Satan's going to be defeated, of how he's restoring mankind into that loving and joyful relationship with him, how he will take on death in order to remove its dreadful curse from us, because death is a dreadful curse, if that's how it all ends up. So God binds himself with fallen man in order to give life for the seed of the woman and death for the seed of Satan. God sovereignly commits himself to establish enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And this battle, as we've been looking at over this last year, this battle is constant. It's ongoing. It's a terrible battle because it's a battle for the hearts of mankind. And you may say, well, why doesn't God just end it? Because God's purposes are being fulfilled. We're still in the midst of it. What happens if he had stopped it right after Adam and Eve sinned and said, that's it. We're not doing any more kids. We're not going to have any because they're all going to be born in the fallen state. None of us would be here. We wouldn't exist. But God had us in his mind before the creation of the world. So now if we're going to be born... We've got to go through this plan. And God has hope for us in the midst of a terrible world. He restrains evil. He doesn't eradicate evil, but he restrains evil. And we do have joy. And we do have brightness. And we do have life. We aren't unaware of the evil around us and the evil that sometimes presses in on us. We're not oblivious to that, but we have hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. We have more than certain victory over Satan. When God looked at creation, 
And he said, it is very good. This is what he says when he looks on his chosen. After the fall of man, after he said about his creation, it's very good, and then, you know, we kind of wreck things. Listen to what he says to us. This is in Zephaniah. He says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. Like that is an amazing thing. You would think that he would be saying, you know, I really don't like these people, but you know, I'm kind of committed because I already started this thing. We got to see it to its end. And you know, none of them are very good. And I don't really like any of them, but you know, here we are. This is it. He doesn't say that. It says that he rejoices over us. (laughs) What an amazing thing that is. So he rejoices over us with joy. It says he will rest in his love for us. Like he rests in his love for us. He will joy over thee with singing. Have you ever thought about the Lord singing? Because he is so joyful about you. That's what he's doing. And our response in Habakkuk 3.18, it says, and Paul quotes this later in Romans, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And he goes on to talk about the righteous shall live by faith. So I just want to end with this thought from Romans. Um, Romans 16:19 to 20, where it says, Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And we thank you that it is a certain hope. A certain hope in who Jesus is. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray and give you thanks in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Millerville Community Church is a non-denominational country-style church with a huge heart for God. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.